Welcome to our Agile Tales, where we share the various successes and trials we've encountered as we navigate corporate levels and political waters to transform the business to be adaptable to this forever changing world. In this series of episodes, we are chatting with Evan Laburn, founder of the Business Agility Institute, or BAI. He is the author of the book, Directing Agile Organization, and the book, Hashtag No Projects, a culture of continuous value. If you missed our previous episodes, we suggest revisiting them first. Having said that, we're happy you're listening in as we resume our conversation with Evan Laburn on Change is the Only Constant. Hi Evan, welcome back. In our last episode, we discussed how organizations are not investing enough in educating their managers. So how can we help these organizations be aware of that need, especially if people can't get it from MBA school? Well, it's having these conversations. So these are things, again, I wish I'd known. Hindsight is 2020. When I became that executive back in 2008, and my boss pulled me aside and said, you're being arrogant. You're not going to keep this job if you don't get better if you don't learn the skills necessary to be an executive. I didn't use those words, but that was the context. Now, what I should have said, not straight away, again, growth mindset, I have to learn, I have to absorb, but three months later, I should have gone back to my boss and said, we need to change the onboarding process for executives. I was an EL2, executive level two. We need to change the onboarding process for EL1 and EL2 and all the other layers in the organization because there are skills I should have had when I joined, but there are also skills I should have been taught after I joined. The good thing about the government is that there's money for professional development. So I took writing classes. I I took a whole bunch of classes that developed me and developed a lot of these durable and professional skills, but it's pull. And we talk a lot about pull. Pull is a good thing in an agile space. So if I realize I need to get better at writing, I can go on a writing class. But the problem is, if you don't know what you don't know, you can't pull. There's got to be some standard level of awareness and inspiration and culture building, if nothing else, for managers and executives. And that's not just the two days they join. An onboarding process isn't a week long. Onboarding is the first two years. Onboarding might actually turn into offboarding because most people don't last more than two years. But the assumption that I know everything to do my job the minute I start or even within a week or two weeks or a month of starting is ridiculous. You're not really proficient in that organizational context for a year or two. And so that onboarding process, again, and the education and the learning and the culture building and the mindset building needs to be commensurate to that time. And I should have, again, hindsight, I should have been able to go to my boss and say, we need to change how people like me are onboarded so that even if they have the skills that they're meant to when they join, we can develop them and enhance them. Now, that's what you've got to do. That's what everyone who's listening has to be able to do. If you're in a leadership role, you need to look at how new leaders are brought into the organization. And I guarantee you, for most of your organizations, it is half-assed at best, zero-assed probably for half of you. And for those individuals who aren't leaders, that's your personal journey. You need to develop that yourself so that you can show what good looks like. So when you walk into that interview, when you're going for that executive level role, 
you can say, I have spent the last two years developing these skills and these behaviors. That is what makes me a good leader. That's what makes me a good manager. And so the interviewer compares you to that confident middle-aged white man who's very proudly sitting there going, yeah, I did this, I did this, I saved a million dollars, I, I, whatever crap that they're saying. And they look at you and they say, that is someone who's deliberate. That is someone who is going to keep growing as a leader versus that confident middle-aged white man who is probably, and like I was, fixed mindset. That confidence becomes arrogance so easily. And again, that was my flaw. That was my mistake. So you got to look at, and if you're not a manager yet, but you can show those interview panels, just what someone coming into this space should have, then people are going to start comparing the other applicants to you. And they're going to go, well, why don't we have more people like that? And that's, it's subversive, it's slow, and it's not foolproof. Those competent people are still going to get hired. But the more people have these kind of conversations, then slowly and over time, that cultural, almost generational shift will occur. And that is where the value lies. You talk about the behaviors and the skills that they need. So I believe the skills are the durable skills that you have already talked about. Um, And and to be fair, also also the professional skills. So I don't talk about them much because let's face it, I got the job as director of business intelligence because I was good at business intelligence and I was confident. If I had all the durable skills that didn't have any knowledge of business of business intelligence, I still probably shouldn't have got the job. <laughs> I, but I don't talk much about that because that's the default. Generally, that's the upper bound of the skill set that we're looking for. So I want to build on top of that. So it's not just durable skills. It's all of them. So I just want to correct that. Brilliant. Then the next question then is for behaviors. So what kind of behaviors are you referring to that they need? So there's a fine line behind behavior and skill, but in principle, behavior is how you act. And so I I sort of like to use the example of going to the gym, something that, let's be honest, I know very little about, but I'm going to use it as a metaphor anyway. You've got behaviors and you have capabilities. You might go to the gym because you have a particular goal in mind, but if you go to the gym and you exercise, you behave in a particular way, right? You work different muscle groups, you have different behaviors, different exercises, you build fitness, you build strength, you build all those things that are necessary for a healthy life. But then what happens is new capabilities are created. You can run a marathon, you can help a mate lift a fridge from one room to another. You can just go for a run with the dog rather than a very slow amble. These are things you couldn't do. These are capabilities you didn't have earlier. And you only develop those capabilities if you behave, if you act, if you, in the example of going to the gym, if you have those exercises, if you act in a particular way. Now, the skill is a little bit deeper than that in so much as like the skill goes to like, I need to be able to do this particular thing. And so if I have those behaviors and develop these capabilities, then these skills become easier. These skills are things that I can do There are more of them. There are more things that I can do, more skills that I have because of acting in a particular way. So that's kind of the relationship between the skills, behaviors, and capabilities that exist. Now, the reason I share that is one of the things that we've developed as an organization is we actually developed a behavioral model of business agility. 
we've looked at both our own experiences as well as the insights drawn from over 1,300 organizations who have taken part in various research studies. We publish a lot of research. So when we look at those organizations, look at our own experiences, look at what's possible, we were able to sort of bring that down to 86 different behaviors that agile organizations express stronger than others. And from that, we can also see the capabilities that those organizations have or the new and improved capabilities that those organizations have. Now, we sort of roughly group those behaviors into either executive level behaviors, as in these are behaviors that we expect the top of the organization to do or to act in that particular way. The leadership behaviors, which more than 50% of those behaviors are what we class as leadership behaviors. And so there's anyone in a leadership role. And again, here is leadership, not management, because leaders aren't, managers are leaders, but leaders don't have to be managers. <laughs> um, so it's anyone in a leadership role. These are the behaviors that we expect of them. And then lastly is the everyone behaviors. And this is, as it says, these are the behaviors that we expect from every single person in the organization. And sadly, often that's not the case. People don't often have them, but that's why we define these behaviors. A behavior is something that you can see, you can observe. And if you can observe it, you can actually measure it. <laughs> so we can actually start to see, we can actually model the agility in organizations, not by the practices, not by the skills, not because they do a retrospective every two weeks, but because they are acting in a particular way. And those behaviors lead to new and improved capabilities for that organization. So I'm curious, well, actually, I have a lot of questions about those behaviors, but I'll wait until later to ask those. I'm curious, does the ecosystem change what behaviors and skills are needed? And if so, how? I don't think anyone's asked me that question. That's a good one. Um, thinking quickly, um, yes. So one of the key things here is complementary behaviors and complementary skills. So no one is perfect. No one has every skill. And let's be honest, like no one behaves perfectly every time. I mentioned earlier, I've got a nine-year-old daughter. I'm always helping her develop, right? That's my job as a father. And part of, it's not so much about her skills. The school will teach her the skills. My job is to teach her the behaviors. But I also recognize that she's nine and that some behaviors, she will act in a particular way today and then tomorrow she won't. Not because she doesn't know the behaviors, but because the context in which we're operating has changed. She's tired. She's frustrated. Um, it's a hot day. She's had a bad day at school, whatever it is. And so, again, these are different behaviors to business agility behaviors. I'm not, I'm not teaching her business agility behaviors yet. Um, but these behaviors, I, I don't expect perfection from her. I expect her to keep trying. I expect her to keep growing and developing, but I don't expect perfection. And the same is true of me. There's an article or a video. I'm trying to remember where I saw it. Uh, it talks about being above the line and below the line. And above the line is things like growth mindset, asking, open to feedback, open to challenge. Below the line is fixed mindset, closed. Um, you, you don't have the resilience to be challenged. And as a leader, as a manager of an organization and a, a leader of a community, there are days when I'm below the line where I can't, 
I don't have the resilience. I, I can't behave in the ways that I hold myself to. I fall into a fixed mindset. Someone challenges me and it's like, thank you very much. I'll take a note of that. And it's in one ear and out the other because I have no capacity, no energy to take that on. Now, I'm not the kind of person to get angry. So if I'm below the line and someone gives me constructive feedback, I'm not going to blow my top. Some people do. Some people, like when they're below the line, their emotional resilience reserves are gone. And so there's that explosion of anger and frustration, not at you, right? Well, at you, but not solely because of you, but just you were the last straw. <laughs> you were the, like, they've been below the line for a while and things built up and now, bam, we're out. Now, obviously in a professional setting, that's not appropriate in most cultures. And so we need to learn how to act when we're below the line. We need to recognize when we're below the line. So one of the things that I do with my peers in the Institute is if I realize I'm like that, I will literally tell them, hey, look, I'm below the line. I can't take feedback today. Make a note of it, put it on a sticky note. Give me a day. Give me two days. Let me unwind and decompress and just build my reserves, build my resilience back. And then let's have a conversation. It's important to realize that. Now, the reason I share this is that your question is, does everyone need every behavior? No, not every behavior, not all the time, because it's impossible. Even if I'm the best agilist in the world, even if I express every behavior every 80, all of the ASICs behaviors, there are days when I can't. So even if I could, it's still not all the time. So what we need is coverage. We need to know what those behaviors are. We need to know what we're striving for, but we also need peers who can pick up the slack, peers who have the skills that you're missing who can support you in your gaps and who you can support in their gaps. And you need the trust and to go to the point earlier, the psychological safety to be able to go, hey, mate, I need you to fill this space in for me because I can't do this. No one needs to be perfect. No one needs every behavior all the time. But an organization needs every behavior. An organization needs every skill. It just doesn't all have to be the same person. We are human after all, right? <laughs> so let's go back to learning and training. How do you convince founders and CEOs that they possibly need to learn because they're bad managers and make oh. bad behavior? <laughs> that is a hard question. I was lucky because it was my boss who told me that I was being arrogant, that I needed to learn. So it was literally his job to tell me that. And this is government, so there's no agility in this. We're talking like annual plan on a pages. I had a learning budget that I had to allocate in December the next year. So I needed to know what learning I needed in October, 10 months later. It wasn't agile. So my performance reviews were annual, like many old traditional organizations and many government organizations. But I had a great boss. And my great boss is like, didn't wait for that annual performance review because to be honest, it would have been way too late. If he had waited 12 months into me being in this job, right, I would have lost most of my employees. We, we would have failed, just full stop. It, it just wouldn't have worked. And I would just be like every other bog standard public servant who dreams of paying off their mortgage and not much more. 
I'm being somewhat cynical and, and facetious here. I know a lot of public servants are very service-driven. Uh, and as was I, which is actually, by the way, why being called arrogant hurt me so much because I see myself as service-driven. So arrogant is more self-driven. But the challenge is, and this is where your question comes in, if I'm in a position of authority over someone, I can highlight, it's my job to help them develop as a person. But if I don't have that authority, then it's much, much harder. Now, there's a couple of ways. Number one, you can have a conversation with someone who is in a position of authority. And so if it's your direct boss, maybe have a chat with their boss. And if it's a founder, maybe have a chat with a co-founder, maybe have a chat with one of the investors or a board member. Again, that only works if the line of connection between you and the person you're speaking to is relatively short. If you don't have or you can't have that conversation, then you can try and influence those behaviors. You can ask for boundaries. And it's like, look, I, thank you. Like, uh, I believe I can take more ownership of this. If you can delegate some outcomes to me, not delegate work, but give me some guardrails and give me ownership of this work package. You're not asking for behaviors. You're not telling them you're asking them to behave in a particular way but you're asking for something that forces them to behave in a particular way. And so it's a little bit subversive. It's a little bit Machiavellian maybe, but again, it comes down to that change your organization or change your organization. And this is where if you can encourage a behavior again, ha 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 ha, sad to happy. If you can get them to start acting in a particular way, there can be a cascade effect as they start these behaviors. And it has to be reinforced. Like if you ask to take ownership and then you suck <laughs> and you stuff up, that's going to go backwards very quickly because the next person who asks, the answer is going to be no. <laughs> All right. So you actually have to be able to deliver on what you're asking. And again, remember this boss of yours doesn't have the CEO, the founder, the boss doesn't have the skill set to necessarily develop you properly yet. So you've got to be really confident that you can do it. But if you are, then ask for it. Ask them for something that gets them to behave, to build up these business agility behaviors and watch that grow and cascade as say, oh, here's a bit more and here's a bit more and here's a bit more until it becomes natural. Awesome suggestion, Evan. You mentioned that good managers not just ensure their employees are trained on the latest in their craft but also enable their workers in their next job. Mm -hmm. However, we know a lot of companies look for return on investment, what they can get in return on the investment in their employees. Yep. So training them for their next job is technically not good ROI because these employees oh, would leave the That's company. where you're wrong. It is the best ROI that you can do. The people who leave your organizations should be your greatest advocates. They literally should be bringing their new employers and friends and family to your organization as customers, as potential recruits. This is a great place to work. Like these people really care about this product, service, whatever it is. And, and don't just take my word for it. Like most of the big consulting firms, and you all know the ones I'm talking about, they have a strategy where at a certain point in someone's career, they've made partner What's the next step up from partner? Well, the next step up is actually out. And so they help to develop these partners into board level positions. They teach them how to be board members. They teach them the skills necessary for the next stage of their career, knowing that this person who has dedicated 30 years of their life to this very large consulting firm 
that consulting firm has done good by them. They've looked after them. They've helped them grow. They have fond affection for this organization. When they're sitting on the board of directors of that company and it's times like we need to do an organizational restructure or, or transformation, it's, well, you know what? This organization needs to work for it. They're pretty damn good at this. So investing in someone's next job is one of the best parts of ROI that you can do for an organization. Now it's indirect ROI, and this is where many traditional organizations fall apart because the R isn't in the same bucket as the I. And often the way that financial systems work in organizations, you need that alignment, right? So yeah, sure, that's different. But when we look at an organization as a system, that ROI is like absolutely, absolutely, uh, it, it can be, you can make bank. There we go. Since we're talking about ROI, how should the performance metric change now for managers? What should the performance metrics be? And how would you recommend we encourage the right behaviors? How should they be rewarded or recognized? As you know, people are rewarded for what they do and all rewards yeah. and recognition can be gained. Yes. So um, some great quotes. If you give someone a measurable target, they will destroy the company in order to achieve it. That's Deming. We're going back again to the 80s. Sally Alata, who runs a company called Agility Health, says, if you use a metric to reward or incentivize, I think it is, you will never see the truth again. But at the same time, there's another quote, you get the behavior that you measure. All of these are true. Right? All of these little aphorisms have that kernel of truth. So this isn't just about measuring managers. This is just measuring people in organizations in general. So measures, metrics, KPIs, OKRs have to be designed to elicit the behavior that you want, because there's always the, the law of unintended consequences. Whatever you measure, you'll optimize for that and you'll sub-optimize for something else. And there will be unintended consequences. So those measures not have to be, have to be deliberately designed for the behaviors that you want. They also have to be deliberately designed for the behaviors that you don't want. <laughs> uh, because that too often it's like, you look at a corporate scorecard, I guarantee you 90% of the measures on that are financial. There's probably one employee engagement measure, but you know what? No one ever gets fired if they don't make that measure. They get fired if they don't hit the widget sales for the quarter. So the measure doesn't count or is it's not given the same weighting. Uh, and so mature agile organizations design their measures to encourage the behaviors that they want and deliberately looking at the unintended consequences that might emerge from those measures. Now, I'm going to shift to the second part of what you said, which is about rewards and incentives. One of our very first research papers was actually called What Moves You? It was a literature review of the papers and the studies on motivation, incentive, and reward. Reward being an after thing, incentive being a before thing, and motivation being the driver. So there's a couple of key points, and, and I could spend two hours just talking about this topic, so I'll, I'll keep it very, very short. So number one, motivation is intrinsic. It's internal. You cannot motivate somebody. What you can do is align their motivations. So there's a few of these, but there's a psychometric model called uh, uh, the 16 basic desires done by Professor Stephen Rees. And it articulates the 16 core motivations of every human. Now, different people have them in different strengths, it's power, status, family, romance, food. 
For reference, food was in my top five. Physical activity was number 16 for me. So therein lies part of my problem. Oh, money isn't a motivator. What you can do with money is. So one of the things that when it comes to from a business standpoint, if you can create different incentives and rewards that trigger different internal motivations for people and you get a decent coverage, you're able to basically align an organization and motivate an organization. So the famous example, like Google's five-star chefs and whatever else, cooking all the food and all that kind of stuff. I don't know if they still do that, but it was definitely the, the big thing. Now, that works really well for people who are motivated by food. Now, if I'm not motivated by food, I give me a cheap burrito or give me a five-star gourmet pizza with fig and whatever else, it won't make a difference to me and my performance what kind of food you give me. Now, I, however, the person who, is, who isn't motivated by food, which actually isn't me, they have other motivations. Maybe they're motivated by family. So you give employees a family day or two or three family days a year. It's days they can take off with no approval necessary. You don't have to justify. It's like, I'm going to spend today with my family. Done. That's all you got to say. If my motivation is family, then that's a damn good organization for me to work for. Now, remember, there are 16 of these. Now, some of them aren't work appropriate, like romance. I'm, I really wouldn't recommend organizations build corporate incentives around motivating for romance. But out of the 16, there are plenty which are work safe. So if you design a broad spectrum set of incentives and rewards aligned to five, six, seven of these intrinsic motivations, then you, you're going to capture most people. So the other thing that the research says is that money is not a motivator. There is very little evidence, there is in fact no evidence, <laughs> that a bonus, a financial bonus, actually creates greater performance, outcome, output, throughput, whatever measure you want. So your annual bonus does nothing to actually improve or, or to incentivize the organization. That's not true for people who are earning under what they consider to be a reasonable living wage. So if you're on minimum wage, and like, again, if I'm in Silicon Valley, what I consider reasonable <laughs> as income versus, I don't know, uh, Alice Springs in the middle of Australia, those are very different numbers. So it's, it's, it's a perception thing. But if I perceive that I'm earning enough, then a financial bonus is not an incentive. I'll take it. I'm not going to say no to it, but it will not motivate me to work harder or faster or anything like that. And there's no evidence that it ever has. It's a very brute force motivator and it generally doesn't work except for people who are below. But that's also, by the way, why many salespeople uh, who are on commission earn a very small salary because the assumption is that they will be driven by commission. Now, it is true. It's also not ethical in many ways, but it is true. It is a motivator. The other thing to note is taking away a bonus is a demotivator. So once you've got it, once you are giving that bonus, you can't take it away from them <laughs> because it becomes a demotivator. And that is a problem. And that's the catch-22 for organizations that are trying to evolve, especially established organizations. Like a new startup can do it right from the beginning, but an established organization, you can't take it away. <laughs> so, so, uh, yeah, good luck with that one. That's it for our episode. Thank you for spending some time with us. Please join us next time as we continue our conversation with Evan Laburn on Change is the Only Constant.
Thank you so much for listening to our Agile Tales. Feel free to ping us on ouragiletales.com.